Um, hi, Ash. It's been a while since we've done a podcast, um, but it's really great to uh, uh, start talking again. Hi, Carrie. Yes, uh, one one episode a year. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy when I started looking back at the, the the account because it's been a little while since we've logged in, um, and it's like, oh yeah, there was there was even analytics. Like people have been listening to it. Uh, 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 dribble over time, but it's like, wow, has it really been that long? It's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Time time goes fast in post pandemic world when we're just kind of at home. So I think maybe I don't I don't remember what the impetus was about us giving this another try, but one of them was definitely like we we bought a domain name and then I got like hover.com like reached out and was like, hey, you know, they the automatic like, do you want to renew? And I was like, oh yeah, whoa, it's been a year. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I, time flies just so quickly. I It just boggles my mind. I can't believe it's almost already September. Mm, yeah. Well, cool. Uh, so we're going to give this another shot. Uh, and I, I'm excited. Uh, you know, I think just even in the lead up to this, we just chatted for like 40 minutes about things that probably could have been recorded <laughs> and would be vaguely interesting to someone, surely. Uh, but, you know, I given that we've called the podcast uh i'd rather be scripting and i try to be a little disciplined and talk about some scripting as part of this podcast sort of kind of on topic maybe we'll see how far we actually get with that <laughs> cool so um i you know maybe just jumping in yes i was playing around last week with this new thing called bun js i'm not sure if they call themselves bun js or just bun or what uh, bun is in like B-U-N. If you go to bun.sh, uh, you can check it out. They call themselves a, a fast all-in-one JavaScript runtime. Hmm. And, you know, they're, they call out a number of key metrics like right there on the front page. So like if you're looking at their server-side rendering for React, they can serve like way more requests wow. per second as an example. There's some sort of thing about SQLite here. <laughs> the it just says load a huge table and again like the average queries per second are just like beyond uh what you would see with uh better sqlite 3 uh for node or whatever the equivalent is with dino uh and then there's this other ffi thing which i believe is their uh that's their interface with system level apis i don't oh, interesting yeah, I don't remember exactly what this stands for, but I think it's somewhere lower on the page. Either way, this is your way to escape into like lower level things uh, and get tighter control over your performance. So either way, you can see that they're really focused on doing things faster. Mm -hmm. I saw, um, you know, it, you, I, I know that you have a few times in your life done, you know, created a new React app. And we all oh, know yeah. what that's like in Node if you do the command line thing and then you wait for a while. And honestly, I guess I've, I've never really thought too deeply about like how long that's taking. But if you do the same thing, there's someone had on YouTube, like a side by side comparison of hitting create react app, like the, the command line tool, one in bun and one in node. And the, the one in bun was just like done in a heartbeat almost. And the one in node goes on for a while, as we all know. It definitely likes to take its time. It's like one of those things where I try to avoid, and that's kind of silly to say, but if if a, if I know a node process is going to take its time, it's like I'll I'll, I'll try to just. It, it gets to the point where it's like, 
how much of an obstacle is this going to be to get me started? And so I was like, I'll, I'll delay that as like as long as possible, even sometimes to just dealing with the pain of, well, I've got it working with Webpack and I already have a, a good known configuration. Just let me copy those things over and let me get started rather than having to wait for the for everything to catch up and install. Because um, if there's one thing I hate most, it's like, oh, I've got an idea. Let me wait for the next several minutes while it tries to actually take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, right? But uh, and in some ways, I feel very spoiled when I think that way. But I'm also like, if I have to wait for 90 seconds or two minutes or whatever, like, who knows what I'll end up focusing on in that time and then forget. Totally. Uh, so it was neat, like, <laughs> having it having bun like move that fast on certain things. I was like, Okay, I'll try this out. You know, there's been a lot of like, uh, you know, with Dino. Mm hmm there's just been the sort of like, what, if anything, will be the next step in Node for JavaScript developers right. building outside of the browser for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. And so Dino's made some, you know, progress over it. I, I was kind of shocked to see this, but it's been four years, I think, since since they started that project. Are uh, you yeah. kidding? Something like that. It, it's been Holy a while, crap. right? Because they were, they were already shipping before the pandemic. And yeah, I remember thinking true. then, like, mm, I should probably start playing around with this. And I, I dabbled here and there, but not deeply. Uh, and then along comes uh, Bun, and is also thinking through, okay, what's the next sort of thing? And if I had to, I know that like these projects, like, there's so much that goes into them, and so you can't really sum up everything they're trying to accomplish in just one thing, one sentence. But my impression from the outside looking in has been, you know, where Dino's trying to solve some. Certain things, especially in, I guess, like dependency management that mm -hmm. they wanted to improve upon, uh, although I know that the narrative around that has changed in the last few, few weeks, but that that was like some of what, what they were kind of looking into there. Uh, whereas with Bun, it definitely seems to be like, let's make this thing go faster. Right. And it feels like both of those are, are super useful to solve for because, um, I mean... I, everyone is familiar with dependency hell and all the different kind of packagers out there. And uh, it's not a day goes by where at some point I'm just fighting with, with node modules to make it do what it's supposed to do or dealing with the slowness of adding a new package or whatever. Um, but then on the flip side is like, even if those problems were solved, there's a whole class of um, things around JavaScript that it feels like should just, should be able to be faster. And I know like one of those things um, often comes up in, in terms of the bundling process, like with Webpack, because sometimes Webpack plus all of these other plugins and everything else can start to really take its time. And so there was, um, I, I forget who wrote it, but ES Builds, you know, got popular for a little while. Maybe it still is. I haven't looked lately, but it's essentially the bundler, but not written in JavaScript. So it can be fast and turns a 40 second build process into like less than a second. And the the iteration capability, the productivity benefit from that is huge. Um, but now you've also had to exit the JavaScript world, which is kind of the downside of all of that. Um, so having anything that improves the performance in, in that regard is always welcome news to, to, my, to my ears. <laughs> and so one of the challenges in trying to, you know, work on the, I guess, like, say we're going to improve the performance, you know, we're mm -hmm. going to move to uh, an, an entirely different runtime. Uh, my understanding is that Bun is not built on top of V8, for example. Interesting. They're doing something else. So uh, at some point, you, you run into the challenge of, well, you've got 
all of these JavaScript developers out there in the world who are used to a certain way of doing things and a, yeah. a certain API surface. So, you know, one of the things that was interesting is I was just kind of, again, just dabbling on a Sunday afternoon last week with Bun was, okay, for one of my first things I'm probably going to explore is like, how do I set up a server with this? Mm-hmm. And to the best of my understanding, and I, again, I'm I'm no professional at Bun at this point, but it seems like Express is not yet supported uh, for underlying reasons that, again, I, I, I don't even know all the details of, but it, it raises an interesting question, which is at what point do you have to be kind of supportive of super popular node modules and yeah. or like backwards compatible with node APIs? So I know that, for example, with most node APIs, if not all, one of Bun's sort of like high-level statements at the outset is we will support the file system module FS or mm-hmm. those kinds of things out of the box. So if you're used to like building against that API, it will, will be no different here. Yeah. Um, so I, I I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting um, that it was in a week where I was thinking a little bit about building a Photoshop plugin. And I know with some things you've been working on with UXP at Adobe over the years and, you know, uh, some things that we had thought about even together very early on in in different ways in terms of like engaging developers, which is, okay, great. Developers show up to an environment. It's a JavaScript environment. Chances are they may be, they may want to reach for certain node modules or assume that certain built-in APIs are there that aren't actually part of the JavaScript language spec. So I I thought this might be an interesting thing to talk about, which is just like some of your experience or thinking on like, how okay, we know we want to do JavaScript, like the language as an API or use JavaScript to hit our APIs yet. Um, We know that all these developers have certain ways of doing things, certain dependencies that they're going to expect to be supported. and, And how do you start to make unpack like what you want to support what you won't support or just walking developers through that whole process. Yeah. Oh, well, it's funny because that ends up being, um, I, there's a little bit of deja vu hearing Bun's direction as well. Cause like, Oh, we're a new JavaScript runtime environment. We want to support all of the Node.js um, APIs, which, um, feels like that might be, um, a rather large lift. Now, compared to some of the other API surfaces, maybe that's not a huge, huge API surface, but it it does lead to that interesting philosophical question of what is JavaScript and what do developers expect JavaScript to be? Um, And I know when we started um, down, down this world of desktop extensibility, modernizing the extensibility runtime in some of our Adobe products like Photoshop and Adobe XD, um, never did I realize before, like how, how JavaScript alone was a very different beast than JavaScript in the browser that we were all very familiar with. And like, that's the number one thing most developers will go reach to and it's like, oh yeah, you're talking about JavaScript. Sure. I know how to do all of these things, including a lot of these API surfaces that it turns out JavaScript does not provide. Um, can we talk about some examples? Because I think there were yeah. some good ones, like maybe, was it Fax, Fetch or XHR or something? That... All, all, like all of those were are, are great examples. So um, we are all familiar with being able to make um, API calls, REST calls. Um, and in the past, we'd use XML HTTP requests, and that got subsumed by Fetch when we had 
proper promises and all of that stuff. Well, turns out that's something that the browser provides. It's not part of the JavaScript language. And so when you are looking at a runtime and you're saying, how do I make calls external to my environment? That is not free. Um, and I know like even Node has made more strides recently of like supporting fetch that is browser compatible rather than its own kind of variant. Um, and so it does kind of call into that, like what is standard without being part of the standard. And I think you can make an argument that things like around network, um, even to file IO perhaps, which which is a little bit at odds with how we do it on the desktop world because we do not use the node file system. It's a completely homegrown API. Um, what browse, what, what developers actually expect. And like, so reaching for fetch to make an endpoint or to co contact an endpoint is natural to like all of us. And yet it turns out it's not part of the spec it, it hasn't been part of Node for a long time or it had a ver different API signature. And so it's like interesting, like with Bun, like when you talk about fetch, what API is it going to be and what are its capabilities? Um, and that can be challenging and um, surprising to a developer who uh, walks into your environment assuming they can do certain things and finding out very quickly that maybe you don't have that capability built in. And probably um, not not a way that they are expect not a right? question they're expecting to be posed to them when they say, "Hey, why can't I do this?" and and then the next thing you've got to say is, "Well, okay, but what is JavaScript?" <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? And yeah, trying to uh, trying to sort of untangle some of that. I think at least in the world where since we have you know a lot of developers who do build on both Node and JavaScript in the browser. They've had to look at some of those differences over time. And I think you called out, for example, like fetch not being present and or for a while having a different API signature mm -hmm. uh, in Node than in the browser is a good example of that. But I think a lot of times there's still just a lot of stuff that we get for, um, I, I don't know, for lack of a better term, we get for free. That it turns out it's like not actually in the language spec at all. Yeah. Well, even things that are as simple as um, base 64 encoding. And uh, like, I mean, I anytime that comes into the discussion, I'm going like, oh, man, it's like I'm now having to go into territory. I wish I never had to just because I'm having to think about doubling, you know, my memory requirements because now I'm having to use base 64. But that is not part of JavaScript. That's something that the browser provides. And oddly enough, to this day, we still don't actually have a native API inside of Photoshop or XD that does base 64 encoding. You have to go um, pull a, essentially a polyfill to make that work. And yet it's one of those things that in, in a lot of ways feels like it should be core to the language um, because it's used everywhere. Um, and then not only that stuff, you have um, things around, um, say, like internationalization. You have things around... Um, particular um, APIs that that we associate with the browser quite often. But if you're talking about using uh, a node module, I mean, there, there's this whole reason that Browserify or Browserify, however you want to call it, exists is to polyfill all those things in a node environment because it turns out these APIs are not standard. They're only provided by the JavaScript environment inside of the browser. And so when you get into like our version of desktop extensibility, it makes things very difficult because you can say, sure, use a node module that you're familiar with, but you never know exactly what APIs it's actually going to be relying on until you try it. And then you find out, oh, this thing is undefined, but it's not clear why it's undefined because chances are good. The library developer was good and is trying to catch proper errors and, and surface something that is useful to you. 
and hiding the actual reason. Well, it turns out 10 levels down, it's because maybe mutation observer isn't defined or fetch wasn't defined in the way it expected or, or what have you. And it really does complicate the developer experience. Um, and I can't say that we've had, we've, we've come to any great answers around that because there are definitely challenges around the developer experience at Adobe, but it definitely, um, I, like I wish Bun all the best because that is a hard line to walk. Um, and even with a lot of resources, completing that API surface so that it is perfect, not just in terms of matching the API signature, but matching how it does what it does is no big, no, no easy lift. <laughs> yeah. And you're saying basically if, if someone, well, you know, if one were to say, we're going to have, you're going to make all of this available. So it's a seamless experience. Well, that that's basically raising your hand and saying, well, we're going to keep up with Apple, Microsoft, yeah. Google, yeah, um, Mozilla, and uh, I don't know if there's a Node Foundation or, <laughs> or all all the people who are investing tons of time into that, and that that's a tough thing to keep up with. I mean, you know, there's new APIs that pop up every day that become mm -hmm. you know over time standard in browsers or standard in the Node environment, or ideally both. If you you know, uh, from my Fingers point of view, crossed, but it, right. it can be tough to get that. Uh, so. In a world where, uh, you know, kind of you have to run developers wants and needs through sort of the filter of like what's actually possible. Um, how do you start to um, like just kind of define, okay, here's the, you, you said like it can be tough to walk that line. But in some ways, like if, if you're the one kind of like, and you're one of those folks say in UXP land or in Photoshop and Adobe XD and so on, like defining that line, right? Like. And so how, how do you start to kind of make decisions on, okay, these are the things that might be browser APIs, or these are the things that you've come to expect in Node, for example, or, you know, not just the Node APIs themselves, but these are the modules that you've come to just assume that you could install pretty much anywhere and it's going to work. Uh, and this is how we're going to pick and choose, like, which ones we want to, to make run for you as expected. Yeah, I think there's... Um... It's a there's there's no one size fits all to this, but I think the biggest most important thing is to identify what is it the what are the problems that you're trying to solve, what are the kinds of specific use cases you're using, what do you kind of expect the happy path to be, and so with that in mind, um, we the the UXP environment uh, powered uh, powering extensibility in Java uh, in Photoshop and XD has some very specific use cases. It's an it's an embedded environment. It is not standalone. So there's a lot of things that that we don't really have to worry about right off the bat. But um, it's also got a very specific kind of feel. Like we're trying to blend in a little bit more with the with the hosting application. Like a, an add-on to Photoshop could ideally look like it belongs to Photoshop a bit or at least use Adobe's design language. So there's definitely things around that where it's like we can say, from a visual appearance sake, like this is how far we will go and, and perhaps no further. And if you want to go further, maybe we provide escape hatches and things like that. Um, or when it comes to certain things around uh, like the node API surface, like um, the reason that the file system API is custom is because we needed to, to sandbox it and ensure that a, a, an add-on that a user is not necessarily doing a code level review to make sure that, yes, I fully trust this thing to make sure that those add-ons couldn't just go and do whatever they wanted to on your file system. So there are definitely areas around like being able to sandbox and security where you can say, yeah, this is probably not something that we will 
support right out of the box, at least without modifications. Um, but the other thing was, um, is a lot around happy path. And so at Adobe, we use react a lot. Um, it is kind of the blessed framework. And so we implemented enough of the APIs to really say that, yes, we could get react working Webpack working with that, get CSS loader and those kinds of very common things when you're building react apps, get those working and we can kind of make that the happy path and say, yes, there are other libraries out there like uh, Bootstrap and things like that, that maybe, you know, they're not going to work out of the box because there's definitely things that we don't uh, don't have support for. But the happy path is use React, use use some of the the frameworks that we've provided. And if you want to go beyond that, then's when you may realize that, that here be dragons um, and there are going to be limitations and trying to be. Um, and I, d I don't know that we were ever perfectly great at, at saying this, but trying to set the, the expe expectation up front. Like we've always said, UXP is not a browser, never will be. And that automatically says, oh, there's going to be capabilities that I would expect from a browser that I won't get. The challenge can be in documenting those. Um, whereas Bun, I think, has a little bit slightly um, maybe easier path where they're not comparing themselves to a browser. They're comparing themselves to Node. So we're just talking about an environment versus just also a UI surface, which just rapidly complicates things. But there's amazing um, the 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 surface area of the browser API surface is just so huge. You've got it amazes me that anyone could even begin to think about building a browser um, because <laughs> you've got you don't just have the HTML5 DOM API. You don't just have CSS and CSS three and four. You don't have just have HTML5. You have WebGL and WebAudio and all of these other modules that the browser is providing to, into the environment. Uh, it, it is mind boggling to me to think about how you would approach building those things again from scratch, which kind of in some ways worries me a little bit where we, we start to have this very samey look and feel to the browser landscape where you have Chrome and Edge and all these variants of Chrome versus Safari and Firefox. And we know that Firefox is continuing to decrease in its market share. What does the future look like there? Um, so a long-winded answer, there's no easy path or 100% fits all. Um, but I think it is really a matter of kind of defining your, your use cases. What do we find to be an acceptable uh, limit to how far we go here? Is it about just trying to protect the users and, and sandbox our stuff? Is it about generating uh, some limited UI capabilities? Or are we really trying to go all the way and saying, we're going to build an entire browser or an entirely perfectly compatible node environment? Um, and then once you get into that and saying like, well, maybe we're not going all the way, it it's a little bit closer of finding, well, which modules do we want to support and which which modules don't we want to support? And so like for us, like we, we even got a little bit more granular than that. It's like there's certain parts of like the OS module that make perfect sense because you might want to know if you're on a Mac or, or Windows. Certain parts of the path module, for example, because there's still reasons why you might need to manipulate paths. And so those kind of, th those became core to that. And then it becomes, well, if someone really has a really good use case and 100 people are asking for this API, then we start to add that to backlog and, and consider what are the implications? The challenge there is, and this is again where I feel for Bun, is every new API you add increases the testing surface, the quality surface, and developers 
speaking as a developer myself, find inventive, wonderful ways to use the, all your combinations of combinations of APIs. And so there will be someone out there who will do something you never expected them to do. It is critical to the functioning of their workflow, app, whatever. And your, your, your logic didn't account for that. And you won't discover it until you know, they come knocking at your door saying, I'm trying to do this. And you're looking at their code like, why would you ever do it this way? Um, but it turns out, you know, maybe this is the only way or, or a specific path that they took. And that that alone is challenging. And so um, <laughs> I look at what Bun is trying to do. And it's like, yes, this is amazing. We need more JavaScript environments. And I'm also going like, dear God, I'm, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to take on at the outset. And I think it's 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 nice to see, you know, you were, you were mentioning, for example, in, in browser land, how it feels like there aren't necessarily as, as many options these days. I, you know, I, I, I tend to feel the same way. And as soon as I say that, I also, I don't have like in my mind, like a timeline of like, when were there like, just like a ton of browsers to mm -hmm. choose from? It's always kind of different browsers have come and gone over time. Uh, but in Nodeland, uh, honestly, the only way I'd ever thought about it until very recently was that, well, you're either doing Node or you're, you know, and, or you're not doing JavaScript right. on, a, in, on the server. And now, interestingly, it's like there's there's three different sort of entrants in that space. Node is obviously the behemoth at this point with a pretty lengthy history going back at least a decade, if not more. Mm -hmm. um, Dino and uh, uh, Bun, which we've been talking about here a little bit. So I don't know. I like I like the idea that there's different um, sort of folks jumping in and trying trying to give us a new way potentially to think about things or trying to really focus on certain specific issues. Yeah. I saw it, on it's exciting. Uh, it's it's I, I, I'm wishing them all the best and I really, really want to try it out because mm -hmm. it, it looks uh, um, it feels important. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll say that, you know, kind of for me, the one thing I wanted to do with it again was I wanted to install Express and then kind of play around with building a server. And that, that it, from what I could tell, is not supported at the moment. So that's all right. Uh, there are other, I just, other than that, I just kind of played around a little bit, mm -hmm. like with building small scripts just to see, you know, but <laughs> kind of from the human point of view, trying to feel like, does this feel faster? was tough to tell. I, I did the, the create react app thing just for fun. And I was like, wow, it was fast. Uh, but I'm also like, well, I wasn't trying to create a react app. So I don't have, don't have much else to do with this right now. That is always the interesting bit uh, in terms of how measuring performance is, I mean, we humans are so bad at it that, I mean, you can start to tell when some things like animations get really slow because it's, it's something that's supposed to be happening so frequently that, you can really start to feel when something gets janky. And yet these like one-off things is, yeah, I can tell the difference between a one second create React app and a 90 second create React app. But on some of these other things, can I tell the difference between um, 10 milliseconds versus 20 milliseconds? Maybe, but probably not statistically, not, not a high, at a high statistical confidence. At least I wouldn't be able to, I don't think. Yeah, and plus, like, I mean, you have other things going on in between you and the actual thing. That, yeah. So there's also just, like, your OS. And what's it doing right now that might or might not make your terminal feel faster? There's also, like, your your shell and your, your shell setup. Yeah. And I've, <laughs> I've certainly done things over the years for my Z shell setup that, uh, you know, 
can make it not feel super snappy starting up, you know, and, and that's a trade-off I know going into it. Uh, so I, I, I found myself not too long ago um, talking about this with someone uh, in terms of wanting to know a little bit about, you know, API performance mm-hmm. on, a, on a given set of like web APIs and saying, well, what we'd like to do is like ask the developer advocates to go hit these APIs and then talk to us about like how fast they were. And the the, the, the trouble with the instinct there is, you know, you, you, we want to, you know, want to know how things are performing. So the instinct there feels right. The, the trouble is that, you know, there is no such thing as just like a constant sort of like you wouldn't hit an API and then say, okay, well, it took 60 milliseconds. Therefore, this API takes 60 milliseconds. There, there's just like any number of things in that chain. Right. Um, a very deep chain of, of things going on between someone hitting enter in the command line and then a response coming back that could have a lot to to do with impacting performance for that one-off thing. And I, I think most of us that spend our time thinking about this kind of stuff realize that, uh, but trying to sort of help help folks beyond like kind of the engineering staff also understand that can be a little tricky without it kind of going into, well, like here's, here's what could be happening on my machine versus what could be happening at this moment in time with their servers or mm-hmm. all the layers of services in between that we don't even know about and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. I find that fascinating to think about. Cause like in so many ways, um, like the technology that that is inside of our computing devices is so advanced, um, so performant. I mean, I'm I'm thinking back to my my days as when I was very young and you know played on a Commodore 64, and you know these are by today's standards they are incredibly slow devices. Um, and there's you know so much complexity and everything that that has been built up around these things that it it starts to feel like they're they're very much a black box, like you look at them, you expect certain things out of them, but you're, you're not always really cognizant of all the complexity that's going on inside of them, especially if you're not even, uh, if you're not a developer at all. And so, but even when sometimes you are a developer is like JavaScript, when you think about it as such at a, as is at such a high level, um, node is at such a high level, even the shell script. I mean, there's so many layers underneath it that it can be really easy to forget all of the stuff going on underneath and that you aren't, in that same level of complete control of the of the machine that you could be from ancient you know, some of these ancient machines. I know there was um, a Hacker News article eons ago um, where someone was comparing the lag um, of typing in a modern, I think it was a modern terminal versus the lag of typing on an Apple II. And like, it's crazy how much slower our current machines are but that's also there for a reason because there's so much processing going through that pipeline. Um, but it, 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 it is, I mean, most people aren't going to be looking at that and thinking about that, or even a lot of developers are going to be looking at it, thinking about it. And yet it is worth being aware of. Yeah. I love that you went to that article. Cause that's like literally what I had in mind too. <laughs> Clearly that was impactful for us. Cause I, it's yes. probably not even the first time we've talked about it, but I, I was thinking about this uh, not a couple of days ago. Uh, I'm on like a, for work, I'm on an M1 Mac, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not super spec'd out because I was the first developer relations hire in a marketing org, so I kind of got the the marketing machine, even though I've got like you know all the code stuff open, and yeah. there's a lot there's a lot going on at once, and so I do find a lot of times on that machine like I'm waiting for it in ways that. You would not expect. (laughs) Yeah. And not only did they not expect, well, at this point I kind of do, 
<laughs> it makes me kind of like, you know, also hesitant sometimes to even think like, well, do I want to try to switch over to that window and play around with it, knowing that I make it beach balled for the next three or four seconds and sound small, but it adds up over time. Mm-hmm. And then you find like, yeah, the, the sort of uh, the response time of that, that comparison ar- article comparing the response time, you know, the, the feel of how fast an Apple II felt to some things in on more modern machines uh, is pretty intense. Um, by the way, my, my take on this, and I, I went out on Twitter and pointed this out at one point was if you're, I, you know, these Apple Silicon Macs apparently are just absolutely amazing. The first one I've had, I have to say, I have had an underwhelming experience with it. And I'm a thousand percent sure it's because it has eight gigabytes of memory. It is exactly that. Well, I won't say 100 exactly that, but it is very close to that most of the time because that's what I did. I went, um, my first M1 Mac was an eight gig MacBook Air, partly because those were the ones you could get because, you know, supply chain, but also everyone wanted Apple devices. And uh, there were, you know, that was the one that was available. And um I, I got it in and started playing with it. And it's like, oh, this, you know, no JavaScript, all this stuff is crazy fast, right? It it it, it felt fast in a, in a way that, that I hadn't, that, that my Intel MacBook was not feeling. Um, and then I started, uh, then I connected it to a second monitor and all that went away. <laughs> and you, I would get into these situations where I would launch like a video call or like, as uh, I forget which one we were using at the times. Um, it wasn't teams, I don't think, but one of these various, you know, flavors of video conferencing and the thing would just beach ball and, or I would open up, um, a particular, nothing that nothing complicated, like a browser tab or what have you. And it would beach ball. And the connection I made was, Every time I added a display to this thing, it got slower and slower, which kind of makes sense, um, but didn't really ever dawn on me because usually we're used to, at least in my mind, I'm used to viewing video memory and system memory as two different things. One is sitting on my graphics card. One is sitting you know, close to the CPU. Um, but in, in one land, that's not true. It's all unified. And so it finally dawned on me that, you know, that when I decided uh, there was one day where I was, I, I was attached to a, an external monitor and I wanted to also airplay a third monitor for a video to my, um, to my TV. And man, that thing killed it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it sat there for a, a easily a good minute swapping things in and out of memory before it finally kicked on. And it's like, oh yeah, like it's having to reserve a frame buffer. It's reserving, and this was like a 4K display. So, you know, the the amount of memory that requires is huge. And it that was the fastest thing to, to clobbering the performance. Um, nowadays, when the, the full MacBook Pro got re- uh, announced, the refreshed, the 16 inch refresh, I finally, I bit the bullet and grabbed that one I wanted a 64 gig version. Uh, I think 32 gig was was the only one available at the time. And I can honestly say at least for frame buffer kind of things of attaching new monitors and stuff to it has never had a problem with it since. But I, it is directly attributable to it has more memory. Um, the eight gig model, to my mind, is something that Apple should just take off this should not sell. It should be 16 gigs or better. <laughs> and even yeah. that in some ways is maybe pushing it. 
Yeah, I can't imagine because like, yeah, the the eight gig, just like you said, connecting the monitor was definitely like I have a four K monitor sitting right here to the side, and that's one of those things where, especially in a work from home world, like yep. everyone gets a laptop for work, but the reality is like you just have it on a stand and it's connected to a, a monitor one hundred percent of the time. So, you know, one of my moves is to wake up the Mac, plug it into the monitor in the morning. And then go to the kitchen to wrangle my yep. coffee and then come back. Because by the time I come back, then I can kind of click on a few things and it'll sort of like the crust will be sort of shaken off of the yeah. its hardness. Uh, but yeah, like I, I've got like this 20, 2019 uh, uh, Intel machine. This is like one of the first ones they made, uh, the MacBook Pros they made with an escape key and a decent keyboard on it after yeah. a long time. And <laughs> Yeah, this one runs really well. I'd say that like the main thing with it is just like it'll it'll slaughter the battery and it'll be running on fans constantly. Although I'm I'm fairly impressed because I'm not hearing fans after running this video conferencing thing with you for well over an hour at this stage. Uh, so I'm not sure what's going on here, but um, generally speaking, like what what I can expect out of this machine is that it will be super responsive. Yet I'll be you know it'll get hot. Uh, I'll hear the fans a lot and they'll be mm -hmm. loud. And, um, you know, the battery, you know, uh, in, in the instances when I'm not just at home plugged in on something, it will will not last me nearly as long as other machines will. That has definitely been my experience. And I'm I'm current. This the machine we're on. Uh, I'm on recording today, too, is also an Intel machine. So I am I as you mentioned that I put my hand over is like, OK, well, how hot is it? I can feel the warmth off of it. But like I'm as surprised as you that the fans aren't blowing a hundred percent because any any normal video conferencing it would just be like a rocket's taking off, um, and the battery get, is clobbered, and that was what I what I kind of put up with for a while on the M1 Mac uh, Book Air was okay. Yes, there are aspects of this that suck um, because it has eight gigs of memory and and switching be between things like. Maybe if I, because I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I will end up with a hundred tabs open. So eventually Safari is going to crawl to a, to, to a, a, a slow down in, in entirely and switching tabs is, is a thrashing process. Right. Um, and so I would get into those situations and it's like, okay, but this thing runs for 20 hours. I don't have to be attached to the wall. It doesn't burn my lap. Um, and so is the trade-off worth it? And for a while it was, um, and then it's like, it, it just, I don't know about you, but these little things like kind of rub at you. And it's like, um, just over time is like, no, I, I can't put up with this any longer. And and that's when I started looking for a revised version like uh, of the M1 MacBook. And the downside was, is okay, for all of this more power, 32 gigabytes and what have you, um, with the, the MacBook Pro 16 inches, now the battery isn't as, is is great. It's still better than my Intel machine by far. Um, but it doesn't get 20 hours. <laughs> it might, um, depending on what I'm running, if I'm lucky, it'll get, you know, 10 or 11, um, which is still saying something compared to the Intel MacBooks. but there are definitely trade-offs there. And so I, it, it is funny what, what feels like a small inconvenience at first, like even going back to the 90 seconds to do create react app, it's fine in small doses. But over time, it really starts to, it, it almost becomes exponentially more frustrating than um, 
than it might otherwise appear to be. And that's maybe an important lesson for us to learn as developers is that little one-off, sure, it takes a little bit while, but you know, how many times will people actually be doing it? And yet, if they do it enough times, that might, you know, send them, send them, you know, screaming with frustration because they've had to do this for the thousandth time. And oh, the beach ball pops up, and I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> and that's a that's why we have a phrase like "death by a thousand paper cuts," right. you know. And, and and when it comes to this kind of performance, like this is this is where you end up feeling it um, in a lot of small ways that suddenly just feel like, um, even though our day-to-day work is often opening up a window on a screen somewhere and doing a thing. But if every time there's some sort of slowness or some sort of like constant, like little happy path dance that you have to do to make sure that you're not going to end up waiting on the machine. um, That's, that's not great. So for me, like I I tend to think like, honestly, uh, you know, what I prefer is I've been thinking for the first time, maybe uh, for the first time ever, and stop me if you've heard this one, because like, I feel like you and I have talked about this in probably just one-on-one before, but like, I've been pondering for the last like four years about getting a, a, a desktop Mac. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never personally owned a desktop, like every laptop I've, or sorry, every computer I've ever had after I, you know, left my parents' house when I was 18 years old has been a laptop. So for me, you know, when I think, okay, well, a desktop, why would I, would I have space for that in my life? And the reality is like, yeah, it'd be great to have something that's like, you always know it's here. It's set up in a certain way. It's going to work. You can get the performance specs dialed in. And the reason why I'm feeling more and more comfortable with that world is because there's just so much more stuff I can do on my iPad pro. Now Uh, I've been like, and this may be a topic of conversation for another day, but I've just, you know, just to mention it lightly, I have uh, been getting more and more to, uh, coding on my iPad uh, because GitHub Code Spaces exist, mm-hmm. and it's not perfect. But the ways that it's not perfect has more to do with the iPad and the the, the, the <laughs> policies of the OS than yes. what GitHub is trying to offer. And so you can kind of almost start to see like there's there's going to be between where we are now and that beautiful future, you know, where it's like, oh, I can code on my iPad, uh, there's there's a path forward to that. So I'm super excited about it. And I think that, you know, like having, being able to rely on having like a lower spec sort of iPad and complementing that with a desktop, it's kind of finally starting to feel like something that would be viable for me mm-hmm. in my day-to-day life. Yeah, I it, it is, that that has always fascinated me with, with um that there is so much power in these tablets and yet there are so many, I, I don't want to say artificial limitations. I mean, they are artificial and, and because Apple is saying, no, you can't do this, even though it's a fully capable general purpose computing device. Um, just like anything else, they have the use cases that they're targeting and you know, it's focused very much towards consumption and media and all of that stuff. So I get why it is the way it is, but to your point, like I've, I've long felt like if I could have, you know, this, this tiny device, it it lasts forever. It has on its battery, it has great performance. It is good enough for me to do the kinds of development that I would typically do with JavaScript and what have you. The only thing it's missing is I can't run node or bun or what have you beyond, you know, the moment I step into Webpack or bundling land is like the the iPad stops working for me. Even if there's, um, even when you can do like some local development, because there is this, or there was, I haven't seen it maybe in forever. So I don't know if it still exists, 
but there there was this version of an app that you could get where it it um it bundled in a node-ish environment. I think it was a full node environment, but what it couldn't do was do things. It didn't have a CLI. It didn't have a shell sh- uh, a terminal. So you couldn't get in there and say like NPM run Webpack, mm-hmm. which immediately clobbered it for me because typically what I'm working on, unless it's a very simple script, I'm going to need a bundler at some point because I'm trying to use React and re- generate some UI or what have you. And so it was cool. It worked until you got into that that state. And it's like, Come on, Apple, just give me give me a little bit more control. And I think the last time I had tried something equivalent to like code spaces, um, like I was finding challenges with the editing experience because I know they're doing a lot of things under the hood to make the editor feel fast and and natural. But that means it's not like a, a, an input field that the iPad is, is, you know, understands natively. And so um, it's always been a challenge for me in the past to to make that work hearing your success makes me like think that maybe maybe that maybe there's hope (laughs) yeah i'll send you that world i'll see if i can dig up that twitter thread and send it to you um the 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 two major limitations that i've run into with it are one the thing you just mentioned which is sometimes it because you're it's a it's what's known as a thin client you're basically in a browser tab and Mm -hmm. everything it's vs code but basically everything that's happening in the browser tab is like none, none of it's really happening on your machine. I mean, right. I'm, I'm sure maybe something is, but like for all intents and purposes, like you're, you're, this is a window into GitHub's cloud. And so the way input is interpreted can get wonky occasionally. I found uh, particularly with copy and paste, uh, not that oh. I would ever do that while coding, but uh, <laughs> uh Yes, while I was copying and pasting while coding, um, sometimes you end up with that little sort of like paste nubbin showing up somewhere. Oh, totally yeah. away from where you're trying to paste. And it, but the thing is, not that I'm saying this is okay, but like the if that shows up and you're aware that it may show up in a place you're not looking, you'll push that the the stuff that you want to paste will be pasted exactly where you wanted it to be. So that that that's not great. Uh, but it's not absolutely fatal. I think the, the one thing where I feel like is a real wall and is interesting um, in the context of most of the conversation we've had today around sort of like this kind of, uh, or, you know, performance mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff is, and, and RAM also, is that <laughs> since this is all happening in a Safari tab, uh, iOS or iPad OS is going to be uh, very heavy handed with what that tab can do uh, related to RAM. And so um, you may be sometimes uh, if you like, let's say, for example, like you want to work in VS code and you're going to switch back and forth between that and I don't know, Stack Overflow or a set of documentation or whatever. Right. I don't know why Stack Overflow came up before Docs, but also Docs uh, and many other things that you might, you know, look, web development land. We all know it's a game of like, how do you manage your windows half the time? So uh, in that world, like sometimes you're going to switch over. Problem is that iPad OS may say, okay, user moved over to this, now VS Code in browser, boom, you're getting killed. Problem is if that's a thin client, the connection is everything. So you switch right. back over and now it's like, okay, uh, GitHub will give you this little modal pop-up that's like, uh, your connection's gotten spotty, we'll see if we can reconnect. Here's the hint, it never reconnects. So just <laughs> don't waste your time waiting on that and reload. Uh, because I, I, I will say that I just, I can't think of even one time that I lost data because I had to reload reload the tab. So 
Which is good. Yeah, I mean, whatever they're doing on that side is phenomenal. I mean, like, congratulations to the GitHub Copilot team for just doing an amazing job with that. So um, I'd say the the, the issue, and again, this is more of an iPad OS issue in my mind, is mm-hmm. that uh, since it has to be in a Safari tab, there are, there are memory limitations at, at play that will work against the user. So there's, I don't know what the answer is, but in my ideal world, one would be faster horse, like just fix that problem in the browser. But two, don't make me do this in Safari. Like, where do I want to do this? I want to open up VS Code and I want a terminal. You're just saying the same thing, right? Which is just like, let me do all this stuff on the iPad, right? And so I don't know. I mean, if there's a way for the VS Code team eventually to ship their own app, which is only a thin client but then gets perhaps like tighter control over the connection mm-hmm. and the memory management in a way that makes it feel more seamless. I could live with that. If it was just a connection back into GitHub Codespaces, great. Uh, and I, I think that would be fantastic. But, you know, again, like, um, why not let me just take this crazy overpowered iPad Pro and do cool development stuff with it on my own machine? Well, and yeah, and we know it's more than capable to all, to support all of these things. I mean, you even have Swift playgrounds and stuff like that. Uh, that that Apple, um, I think it's with iOS 16, is going to say you can even submit to the to the App Store from your iPad. So it's more than imminently capable of doing these things. And yet, the, the browser experience um, is is such a frustrating one. It's like. Either let me, you know, control, I'm the user, I know what I'm doing here. I I get that we're trying to protect against cases where you could have a web page that's spinning up some crypto thing in the background and, you know, maybe it's mining coins and you don't realize it. And so I understand all those warnings that come up like this page is using a lot of resources or it's using a lot of memory, you know, and, and being heavy handed. But on the flip side, I'm using this right now. I know what I, I I know it's going to be resource intensive. Let me tell you, let me inform you, Safari, keep this thing in memory, keep it running because I'm going to be back. Uh, even if it could do those things, like I, a native VS code would be like North star. That would be, that would be chef's kiss. I really, really want native VS code on the iPad. Um, but even if I could, as a, a, in the browser world saying, you know, keep this tab forever <laughs> until I explicitly get rid of it. That uh, that would go so such a long way. Uh, I really wish Apple would do that. I, I'm not going to hold my breath though. <laughs> <laughs> I it, it's funny because it, part of me, as you say that, I think back to uh, and not to keep bringing this back to Creative Cloud products, but like <laughs> with Photoshop, uh, I'm not sure what the current state is. No, I am sure because I had to do this uh, on Wednesday morning as a non-Adobe person these days. So I was trying to build a UXV plugin in Photoshop right. just for fun, playing around some stuff. And you still need to go in and enable development mode. Yep. Uh, which is fine. Like I have to enable development mode in Safari to get certain menus. And that does that's not the end of the world. Like, can I have an iPad OS in developer mode that lets me right. sort of make some of my own decisions? Well, and, and and there's certainly precedents there is, and this is going to be maybe feel a little bit of a tangent, but um, I recently got, uh, finally got my Steam Deck and nice. um, awesome device. It has me, it, 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 I mean, because it's marketed as a computer, right? So there's, it's a, it's a Linux OS. It, you could put windows on it if you wanted to. I'm probably never going to, unless they, they fix the dual boot, boot uh, make that easier. But um, it seriously has me thinking about, you know, what could I do in terms of scripting on on this kind on this 
what we look at, what looks like a game console, a handheld handheld game console, but actually has the power of a full, full computer. Could I, I mean, technically it should be possible to run VS code on this thing and get it working. I haven't tried it yet. It's in the back of my mind as like one of these next things I want to try. So it'd be kind of absurd that the Steam Deck, which is, you know, still an Intel machine, it's reasonably well specced, but it's not the biggest powerhouse as battery life isn't great. And if you're, if you tax it all this much, but it, there's something nuts about the fact that this thing could probably run VS code just fine. And yet my iPad next to it, which is imminently more capable, at least in terms of CPU processing is, is, is restricted. And Oh, by the way, there's a little flag. So it, uh, it's like uh, in the settings panel, there's a little flag as you scroll down that says enable developer mode. <laughs> And so at least it lets me make the call of saying, okay, I know what I'm about to do is potentially, you know, I could do all sorts of horrible things and totally brick my device. Right. But I'm, a, you know, I, I'm going eyes wide open that this is a possibility. Like, it's fine if you want to throw up all the warnings in the world and say, are you sure you know what you're doing? Um, but if you are sure you know what you're doing, let me take that on as, you know, I'm consenting to, to, to living with the consequences um, and it's kind of frustrating that Apple doesn't really let us do that with, with, I mean, the latest M1, uh, Air, what is it? The M1, uh, iPod, iPad pros. I mean, <laughs> those things are just crazy powerful and it's like, it's hard to, to, to me, for me to look at it and say like that I'm taking it to its limits with, when I'm just using it for content. Um, when I know I could really push it with some de cool developer stuff. Um, so it always kind of gets me a little bit up on my, uh, my, uh, my soapbox in a way of like, Apple, come on, give us a little bit more control. Some of us developers, I mean, developers, we do know what we're doing with this thing. <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, I'm just imagining you carrying, I suppose, I don't, I would assume the steam tech connects to like a Bluetooth keyboard and hunched over like this tiny screen. <laughs> <laughs> that's the cool thing about it right is it has a full i think it has a full thunderbolt th thunderbolt system in it if not thunderbolt it's and it's fully USB-C, so it can run a 4k monitor it can run a keyboard it can run a mouse you can plug in hubs to it um it even has a reasonably decent like on-screen keyboard it's not as polished as some uh, some other things but it has some interesting things that make input not feel so bad with it um, but you could, you could functionally realistically turn this into a computer. Um, and then, you know, like the, the, almost the world's your oyster in a sense, cause you can turn it to, it, ha it comes with a full desktop environment and you can, uh, switch to that and run games from there or run other applications from there. Um, it uses Linux flat packs. So if you want to put LibreOffice or these other various other things on here, you can, I even installed edge on it because you can so already you have the ability to install multiple browsers <laughs> on it versus apple saying safari only um, but i was able to install edge on there because you could also use it to do cloud gaming from your x or with the x cloud um from microsoft and so imagine if apple would just open up just a little bit more with its with its ios surface and what was possible some of the the cool things that could actually be built out of that, um, that users, yeah, it's not serving maybe nine eighty percent, maybe even of the users. I don't know what I'm just pulling a number out of my hat, but there's still a whole lot of users who might suddenly look at that thing and say, "Hey, that's worth picking up because I could do this," hmm. um, and it it feels like a missed opportunity to me that they don't do that. 
Okay, uh, and just a maybe final thought here. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm curious just because I haven't looked into the Steam Deck too much, but you've mentioned it a couple of times to me, and now I'm kind of like, hmm. Uh, you know, with the Switch getting into its fifth year, and I'm about mm-hmm. to, I actually need to mail off. I have to mail off my Joy Cons because they've gotten the drift oh, no. thing pretty bad. And I actually, yeah, I just signed up for sign up is pretty easy. You fill in a web form, they give you a FedEx slip. So I'm going to send it off, but you know, I'm kind of thinking through like what would be like a fun sort of next level gaming experience. Like, sounds like Steam Deck to me. And again, this is knowing nothing but what you just described. It's sort of like a Raspberry Pi on steroids with the game controller attached. Like, is it like what's the spec like? Um, does it you know? I'm sure the memory and processing power well beyond like what you would have in a Raspberry Pi, but in some ways, it sounds like a very hackable machine. It it does. I mean, um, I don't know. I'll say this. I don't know what the current specs of, say, like a Raspberry 4 are today. I, I'm thinking back to like my Raspberry 2 and it's well beyond that. Um, I think what's interesting about it is it's it's got a really good, especially for the size and the power that it's allowed to draw because it's just sitting on a battery. It's a small form factor. It has, you know, it has to deal a lot with heat and everything else. Um, it's still got a very modern GPU on it, which is in my experience has been something that's held back the Raspberry Pi a lot is it has a GPU. You're not going to have fun using it. Um, (laughs) if that makes any sense. And this thing, it, I mean, it, it, it has reasonable performance. It's running AAA games. Yeah. Maybe not at 60 FPS, but you can get it at 30 FPS, maybe even 40. And these are some of the latest titles that, you know, I, I, I might even in, in some cases, um, you know, I've got an Xbox Series S. Um, I don't have the X, but I have the Series S and it'll lock some of these AAA games at 30 FPS because that's all the hardware is capable of. And yeah, I can get some of this, that same feel out of the Steam Deck. So granted, Xbox Series S might be pushing a 1080p uh, screen or higher depending upon the game and the steam deck is you look at the screen resolution and you feel like, Oh, well that's kind of small, but um, I think it's 1200 by 800, something along those lines. So it, it's just a notch above 720p, but the screen is really high quality. You don't really notice it all that much unless you're playing a game that has crazy small text. Um, it's not perchance OLED, is it? It is not OLED. Um, that's one of those kind of things that maybe maybe we get lucky with a Steam Deck 2 or something like that. Um, but it is a pretty decent screen. And so you can still get these this experience because now it's closer to you. And they've done a really good job at the, the pixels per inch. It's not quite retina, but at the size that it is and the distance that you're at, it's not bad. Um, and so you're able to get a good amount of performance out of it. Is it... Um, you know, does it struggle in some cases? Absolutely. Like, um, one of the games I was playing with yesterday, cause I love city sim games. Um, so I was trying city skyline on it. Um, and that game it's, it's, it's shockingly old now. It was written in 2015. Um, and it can, it doesn't take long until the city, like a, a city of 2000 people is really starting to drag my frame rates down to l- less than 30 FPS on a regular basis. So get a much larger city and I, it's going to be hurting. Um, but it it's also amazing that the silly thing is capable of it in the first place. Like I, I never imagined, I mean, I think city skyline is on the net uh, on the switch as well. And it's way worse on the switch than it is on the deck. Mm. Um, I, 
I looked at it a couple times on the switch and I said, yeah, I'm not sure I should have even got it because it's just a fuzzy, horrible mess. It's actually playable on this, on the, on the deck, as long as you don't build big cities. If you like big cities, you're out of luck. Um, <laughs> but uh, to back to your original thing is like, it is, it, it, if you wanted to say raspberry four on steroids, absolutely. But it's on steroids plus a really good for its size GPU. So you have, you, you also have this side of the world. Now, if you go to the Linux side of the house, you can do some interesting things with it, but then it's also extensible. So, Oh, well maybe I can, it'd be fun. One of these times, like you could have it be your music DAW connect to a MIDI machine or, you know, a, a keyboard that's running MIDI. You could do that. You could, I, I recall someone on YouTube um, managing, and this was not by using the USB-C port. I think you had to use the M.2 internals, but they got an external GPU working on the thing. So it is eminently hackable, which excites me because not only do you have this big company uh, or big-ish company, Valve and Steam, backing it, but you've also got this this incredible developer community that's sprouting up around it saying, what's all the cool things that we could do with this that isn't just gaming? Um, and it's fascinating to see what they're coming up with. That's super cool. Well, I'll keep my eye on it. I've uh, I've definitely been thinking recently, just again, as the Switch is kind of getting older and, um, you know, you mentioned like a game that doesn't keep up with frame rates. And I, I'd heard that like the recent... Uh, re-release of some flavor of lego star wars that came out on the switch not too long ago also suffers from that phenomenon and so i don't know i mean my guess is that i'll probably hold out for another year just to see what what happens like i have i have my switch i have my uh panic play date that i'm still goofing around with a lot uh and so i'm probably good for a little while but i have started thinking a little bit about what'll be next uh, yeah, I think what's going to be most interesting with that one is because it is very much a 1.0 product. Um, but also, unlike some of these other things, it's like, will Switch 2 be backwards compatible? Who knows? Um, but at least with the Switch, uh, or Switch, the Steam Deck, it is a PC and it's running Steam, which means if you're at, if you're in that environment or you're willing to, to, to run Linux games, um, you could get new hardware that is more performant and still keep your collection, which is is something that I'm more and more um, coming to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, kind of circling back to Nodeland, even. I mean, and it's not at, at all the same thing, but well, I love a command tool like NVM that lets me just like swap between right. like Node versions like super quickly. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, I'm not sure how that would manifest itself in a gaming environment, but like the idea that you could boot into like older versions of the OS or whatever to to play your old collection that may not be supported by the new version of the OS um, would would be nice. I mean, yeah, certainly more than ever. I guess this is like the Switch is the first game console I've ever had that basically all but one or two purchases have been like digital. Mm hmm. And I do think about that a little because I've had like past games on iOS that I've purchased that definitely are no longer available or supported on, on modern yeah. iOS. And I was thinking about one of them the other day uh, that hadn't come up in a while, but I was like, wow, it'd be sh sure would be fun to play this. This is like a first person um, cockpit flyer for the Millennium Falcon uh, it, oh. that was released in like 2010 on iOS or something. It, it, I, I mean, 
was it the best game ever? Maybe not. It was certainly a lot of fun. I got a lot mm-hmm. of mileage out of it, but it didn't take long for that game to suddenly just disappear and not yeah. be downloadable. Which is frustrating because you want to feel like, and I know that gets into a big, deep discussion that that would probably be worth an episode, but um, of what you own and what you don't own in, in this digital world. And even my brain understanding that 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 is a thing doesn't always catch up to it is like, Oh yeah, this thing may just disappear and I've spent good money on it. Well, cool. Yes. Speaking of future episodes, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll start to close this one out. We had two topics in mind. We got through one of yeah. those and a bunch of other topics that weren't even on the list, uh, which is basically the only way I ever want this to be. So, exactly. um, yeah, for the other one that we had in mind, let's come back to that next time around. Uh, currently, we're thinking about doing this like once every couple of weeks. So hopefully we can we can actually stick to that schedule. Uh, if you don't hear from us in two weeks-ish time, uh, maybe you'll hear from us in exactly 12 months time instead. But hopefully not. Hopefully not. We're actually trying to like get this on a, on a schedule. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. It is actually in the calendar. So, you know, I... If things are in the calendar, they tend to get done. So I, I'm going to knock on, I don't have wood in front of me, but I'll knock on the keyboard in front of me. So cool. Well, Carrie, it's been awesome. Uh, so absolutely. Yeah. In the, in the meantime, I'd rather be scripting. I don't know about you, but uh, I hope I get to play with a little more scripting in the next couple of weeks and we'll talk about that then. Sounds great. Talk to you in a couple of weeks then. 